Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We are on the third map episode. That's right. The last two episodes, we talked a lot about the human experience with maps, about uh, all the complex ways that we interact with our maps, how core the map is to our understanding of the universe, about how complex it gets when you throw in religious ideas and philosophic ideas and, and all these unreal things, and, and it just becomes this quagmire. So in this episode, we are stripping away a lot of the human complexity, and we're looking at the animal complexity of when it comes to maps, because you won't find a lot of physical maps that have been drawn by, like, an elephant or a beetle, but... As far as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> they may not actually create maps, but there is mapping going on because because humans were mapping before they actually made the maps, as mm-hmm. we discussed. So we have the we have the, the neural architecture for mapping. It's part of how we or any animal moves through a three dimensional world full of fixed and movable objects. It's just part of our navigational system. Yeah, and there are similar similarities between uh, humans and animals, but you could argue that animals have a much more sophisticated system than humans. And in fact, the term cognitive mapping was uh, first used to describe the superior maze-solving abilities of lab rats. You know, we think about that term in terms of humans, but that is not so. Uh, it is these guys that really helped us to understand how very well they can navigate space. Right. So let's talk about the similarities in the way that humans and animals navigate. For starters, and this is something we discussed in uh, one of our previous episodes, horizontal vertical neurons. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we, when it comes to like a chessboard, we are nearly more similar to the rook, the little castle that moves up and down, side to side. Like that's what we understand the most. Uh, throw in the movements of a queen or a bishop that's going diagonal, and uh, it ta- we're not as we're not as hardwired to catch those movements and to and to move in that way in our head. Yeah, there's stealthy moves to us, right? Yeah. And the reason for that is because we have these saccodes or eye movements, this machinery that really tracks well on this X Y axis, and it's the same for other animals. Um, and it really makes sense for us landlubbers animals and humans, because think about our coordinates uh, that we deal with all the time. We deal with these really vertical trees Mm -hmm. and this really horizontal landscape. So it would make sense that that's how we are oriented, uh, let's say, in comparison to something like a cephalopod, like a squid, in which the coordinates are very different underwater in the deep, and they don't need that sort of XY orientation, which we've talked about before, like how incredible it is. That they can navigate their space. If you if you need any proof that humans live on that X Y axis, uh, certainly try doing some eye exercises where you roll your eye like uh, like the hands of a clock, and you'll find that it's that diagonal space in between in between the uh, uh, the twelve and the three in between the uh, the three and the six. That's where you're going to find a little strain uh, unless you've been using eye exercises regularly. Which you know some people do. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, we all should really. It's just. Um, You're right that when I do it in a circle, I can really see, but when I go up and down and side to side, it's much clearer. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. That's that's one of the similarities that we have with other animals, at least land-dwelling animals. And then we have something called path integration. Yes, path integration, in a sense, backtracking. 
the, the example that mm-hmm. comes to mind with, with path integration is you fly somewhere you've never been to before. You, you're on vacation, and basically someone drove you to the hotel, so you have no real idea of where you are. But you still, I guarantee it, if you're in, say, you're, a, you're in a hotel in Bangkok, you can step out the door. You can look to the end of the street and be like, oh, there's a place where I can buy a newspaper. You can go get that newspaper. And then you can look down the other street and be like, oh, there's a place that's selling uh, mangoes. Go buy a mango. And then you'll be able to get back to your hotel either by backtracking or by taking um, a different course. Like you'll you'll have in your head this map of the places you've been and where you are in reference to the place you came from. Yeah, Ken Jennings in his book, Maphead, talks about this. He talks about being in D.C. and going to all the different museums there and then going back to the metro, the train system, and saying, you know, they didn't retrace their steps through these five different museums. They basically looked at where the sun was and where the train was and Mm -hmm. said, okay, we think we can make our way back there. And, of course, animals do a similar thing, but much uh, in a a much better way than we do or... um, a more direct way. In fact, you can look at an ant and see it roaming around for 200 meters, just kind of randomly meandering, foraging for food. And then once it finds food, it takes an absolute direct path back to the beginning uh, of where it was, um, such as their homing device in their in their heads. You brought up landmarks, and that's another core thing that uh, that both humans and their fellow animals you use to navigate. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've had uh, studies which have shown that, that fish even can use landmarks to, to navigate the world around them and to reorient themselves when they've been taken out of one environment, a, bit, a large environment, and put in a smaller one, or vice versa. Yeah. And we've seen um, species like jays and nutcrackers, they're foragers who tuck away their food in thousands of different places, relying heavily on landmarks. Right. Uh, another good example are whales in uh, the Pacific who are traveling toward North America on the West Coast. I mean, they the whole continent of North America is essentially a landmark and that establishes where they're going to take their turn. And then, of course, there's the position of the sun, which plays into our circadian rhythms, our, this, this understanding on a, on a biological level about uh, what, the, uh, what the, cycle, the solar cycle is doing, what the lunar cycle is doing. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to determine where we are in relation to the regular setting and rising of the sun. Yeah, and so, of course, animals and some birds can even travel at night using the sun. And the theory is that they take the, a reading from where the sun sets and then uses that to set their course. And then others think that the polarization of light coming from the sun plays a role as well. Of course, this is all stuff that we have in common with animals. There's a bunch of other things that animals use that, that we just don't have access to, things right. like scent, um, even the, like a bee's waggle. Yes. Yeah, we're not, we're not so good at using the waggle to, uh, to navigate. I've tried, but nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> of course, one of the big differences in the ways that, uh, that humans navigate the world and animals navigate the world are our ability, or in our case, our inability to detect the Earth's magnetic field and navigate the world by it. Um, we discussed in the past, uh, when we were talking about bats, we talked about uh, magnetite, which mm-hmm. is this uh, ma- magnetic substance in the bat that allows it to uh, detect the Earth's magnetic field. Humans have it in their bodies as well, but we're not really able to do anything with it. Um, other animals can do really amazing things with it, such as the uh, loggerhead turtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are pretty famous because they hatch and then they make a 10-year, 8,000-mile circuit of the North Atlantic returning back to Florida, um, where they hatched from. 
And they are very sensitive to the magnetic fields that the Earth has. Yeah, they get over like 9,000 miles, uh, 15,000 kilometers before they return. And it's, uh, it's believed that they create this mental magnetic map in their, their heads uh, based on the, um, the angle of magnetic field and intensity in the areas that they travel through. Yeah, in fact, there have been some experiments. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill had some researchers who actually threw the turtles off course, Mm -hmm. Uh, but then the turtles were able to find their way back with very little difficulty, and they think, again, this is the magnetic fields, the lines that they're following. And then um, believing that some magnetic orienting was going on, The next experiment subjected the turtles to a variety of magnetic fields that differed from the Earth's natural field. And, of course, the turtles went off course again. And exposure to a magnet that mimicked the Earth's field set them right again. So this is proof that the turtles can detect the Earth's magnetic field and then use it to navigate, which I think is fascinating because, to me, this is like a superpower that we just do not possess. Now, that uh, magnetite I mentioned, uh, crystals of magnetite have been found in various creatures. Uh, It's even been found in in some bacteria. Yeah. But you'll find it in the brains of bees and termites, fish, uh, again, humans, though it's not really doing anything there, and in birds, uh, most notably in the beaks of pigeons, homing pigeons. Yeah, homing pigeons, of course, we know are are wonderful at navigating and have been used uh, by humans quite a bit for that purpose. But uh, the studies do suggest that the birds sense the magnetic field independent of their motion and posture and that they can identify their geographical position. Now, the reason why researchers are really interested as well, this this pigeon-type receptor system, is that nanotechnologists are really interested in learning more for accurate drug delivery systems based on this receptor system. And I also wanted to point out that they think that this this magnetite could be a universal feature of all birds, which would help solve this mystery of why they can navigate so well. Because we know, of course, the magnetite helps the magnetic fields, the sun's position, but there are also other things going on like scent. Yes, and before we get into scent, let's take a, a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about navigating the world around you with maps made out of smell. All right, we're back. Smell maps. Smell maps, yes. Uh, so, you know, to a certain extent, we've talked before about, as humans, we're, we're just walking through the streets of our lives, walking through our daily environments. Even if we're not actively thinking about the map around us, our, our mind is forming a map based on the information that's coming in and the things we're experiencing. So to a certain extent, we may form a smell map. We may know what parts of the office are smelly which parts smell like a strong air freshener, which parts may smell like donuts, depending on the uh, the time of the day. So to a certain extent, we have a very limited smell map, but it's nothing like the smell maps that uh, some of the animals out there uh, use to navigate the world. Yeah, I was just thinking about when I lived in Midtown Atlanta, and on a Sunday morning, I would take a walk around, and I always wanted to do a scratch and sniff map because <laughs> that's pretty there, great. There's, you know, a, an area that has a lot of bars in it, and you know, there were very distinct areas that yeah, you there's could always smell. that mixed alcohol in the gutter. Stink. Yeah, in know? the bleach, trying yeah. to to clean the sidewalk. Kind of off. a New Orleans-y yes. potpourri, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that doesn't uh, that kind of pales in comparison to an animal's ability to smell an entire habitat it's flying over. 
Now, obviously, we have, we have animals such as ants that famously use scent trails to navigate. They, you know, you see them marching in their lines, leafcutter ants, for instance, and they're marching from one place to the other. They're just following the scent trail left by the guy in front of you. And you can manipulate that scent trail to spell out your name, to, uh, <laughs> to lead them off course, to, to, to do all sorts of, um, I guess kind of mean things uh, to the uh, the poor leafcutter ants who are just trying to get stuff done and and conduct their agricultural uh, experiment underground. Oh, you're just delaying them. Yeah, yeah, because they're 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 going to get the stuff there. They are determined. But uh, but yeah, so so there's that model of simply following scent trails. But uh, but then there are some slightly more complex methods as well. Yeah, because what do you do if you're an ant in the Sahara, for instance? Because it's so windy and sandy, you're not going to be able to pick right. up the scent, right? Um, so there's a Swiss zoologist by the name of Rudiger Huener, and he altered ants' paces by putting them on tiny stilts. Ants on stilts. Mm-hmm. Made of individual pig bristles. <laughs> and he did this for a reason, not, not just to start a little ant circus. Um he wanted to know how their pace informed their ability to navigate. So what he found is that when he put the ants on stilts, it really altered their pace, and they overshot their destinations uh, by a pretty big margin, hmm. which then pointed to him that, that uh, ants are actually doing a sort of um, mental math, math calculation with their steps. Hmm. It was pretty fascinating. And then we had mentioned the waggle. Yes. Another way that other animals communicate directions. Right. These are the bees that communicate by, by shaking their, their hinders, mm-hmm. by doing a little dance, the, the dance of the bees, which is more than just a, a celebration of, of, their, <laughs> uh, of their, their honey-based uh, life, but, but actually a communicative gesture. Yeah, they share geographic information like the direction of the food sources relative to the sun, uh, the distance, and then the quality of that food source, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs> There was, I think, there was an old, uh, there was an old Donald Duck cartoon where he dressed up like a bee to uh, to steal their honey, and I can't recall if he actually did some waggling. I, he did some waggling for sure because a he's Donald and right. b he's got this big fake uh, stinger on his uh, his hinder there. But uh, but I want to say that he he did a little waggling uh, in a, as a bee communicative measure as well. Well, and I do kind of remember the the uh, badonkadonk waggle that he has anyway. Yes. So yes. sort of a natural thing. It's funny how in kids' stories there's so many plots involving another creature trying to pretend like it is a honeybee or some other yes. thing trying to steal honey. It's a big deal. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's one of the, the classic stories, right? The bear trying to steal the, the mm-hmm. bee's honey. I mean it's a cautionary tale too, right? Because there's something that the bee has. The human or the bear or the duck wants it, and it's going to risk getting stung if it tries to steal it. So, That's right, yeah. which is the whole point of children's books anyway, right? They're instructive. Um, all right, well, let's take everybody out here with a couple of other amazing examples of how animals navigate. First of all, there's this creature called the frilfin goby, which is a little fish. It sounds like it could be a Middle Earth inhabitant, though. Yeah, or yeah. It, it does sound like a, a, a hobbit's name. Or maybe a dwarf, but uh, but what's what's amazing about this little critter? Uh, well, it's a small tropical fish, and it's found in rocky pools along the Atlantic shore, and all that is you know pretty like okay, pretty rote information. Um, but this is the really cool thing about this fish: if a tidal pool that it's in becomes really low, or a predator shows up, the fish can eject itself straight up into the water mm-hmm. and into another tidal pool. 
with great accuracy. And it can do this six successive times until it can find a tidal pool that doesn't have a predator in it or seems safe. And what scientists think is that because these fish have had an opportunity during high tide to explore, that they have been able to make a mental map of all these different tidal pools uh, that they can work with in these situations. Because jumping from one tidal pool to the next, I mean, that's uh, that's a dangerous proposition if you don't have a, a clear idea that there, A, is going to be a tidal pool there and then have some idea of what's going to be in it, right? Yeah, exactly, right? What's the uh, term, out of the frying pan into the fire? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's the Manx shearwaters. This is a kind of bird. Yeah, these guys are pretty amazing. They regularly migrate uh, over 10,000 kilometers to South America in the winter. Uh, where they, they use the waters off uh, southern Brazil and Argentina. So you'll have some of these older birds that have clocked somewhere, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million kilometers, so 5 million miles during the course of its lifetime. Like, you, I, anytime I think about that, um, in terms of any bird migration, you know, you think they're, they're, they're humans that spend large portions of their time never leaving a particular area and yeah. in many cases live their entire lives within a very um, fixed space. And then you have these birds that are just true globetrotters. Globe <laughs> that are true globetrotters, you know? Uh, yeah, and actually, um, I'm going to tell you this story about a, sh- a shearwater. Now, when I tell you this story, you try to imagine yourself as this shearwater. Okay. Okay. Um, in 1953, British ornithologist R.M. Lockley asked his friend in London to take two Manx shearwaters on a plane from London to Boston with him. <laughs> just okay? a commercial flight. He just... just a commercial flight. Okay. I mean, that was back in 1953. Yeah, I think true. you pretty it's much pretty... do anything. Um, so only one of the shearwaters survived. Uh, and when they got to the Boston, uh, Boston's Logan Airport, his friend set the bird free, which is what uh, the ornithologist wanted him to do. So the friend wrote to Lockley to tell him what he had done. And then 12 days later, and 3,200 miles later, the Shearwater returned to London ahead of the letter. So this is amazing to me because can you imagine someone stuffing you on a plane and not having any context of where you are, Mm -hmm. being taken to another location, again, without any sort of data about where the sun is, uh, any sort of landmarks sent, and then being able to find your way home. Yeah, I would just, like, the first thing I would have to do is just climb a tree so that the wolves wouldn't eat me, you know? I'd just, like, oh, I'll climb up there and maybe they'll find my body and only the, my eyes will be gone. <laughs> so that's your strategy, to climb the tree? Pretty much. My sense of direction is not that good, so. <laughs> you know, you can actually increase that. There have been studies that say that uh, people can increase their, their sense of direction and their ability to, to navigate better. It's just practice. Practice. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, there's hope for me. Maybe Maybe I won't. Just climb the tree and die. Maybe I'll look around. No, no. Map boot camp for you, I think. Map boot camp. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm trying to imagine people showing up for map boot camp. Like, <laughs> the instructions will have to be pretty. Like, they basically need to send a bus to your house to get you. Because because uh, otherwise, it's just you're, no one's going to show up. It's going to be like three guys showing up 45 right. minutes late. And they're like, where? My goodness, I had the GPS and everything. And I and now I'm, I barely survived. Yeah. I think this would make a great reality show. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, there's just a, some quick uh, insight into the uh, animal world of maps, how animals navigate the world and form these. Uh, they may not be a physical map, but they're certainly forming these elaborate mental maps of the world around them. So hopefully in these three podcasts that we've, we've done to, to cover uh, maps, you've, you have a, a different view of, of what a map means. Well, not only what it means on paper, but what it means in the mind of the, the human or animal that conceived it. 
Indeed, and how much uh, animals and humans are alike in many ways in navigating this world. All right, if you have something you would like to share with us about maps, your experience with maps, your experience with animals, uh, I know some of you guys out there are dog or cat owners, and you may have some miraculous stories about dogs or cats that have disappeared for a little bit and come back or or have made a long journey from uh, from their current home to a previous home, that sort of thing. We Everyone loves those stories. So let us know about them. We'd be happy to read a few on the air. You can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those feeds. And you can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs> 